Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I'm Duncan Kinney, and I am your host for our first ever episode. Think of this podcast as a mix of The Alberta Advantage, Chapo Trap House, and Canada Land. We want to do it every week, and we want to keep it around under 45 minutes. There'll be jokes, but it'll also be an informed roundup and analysis of the politics of the week with the occasional scoop. We'll be focusing mostly on Alberta and Western Canada, but that doesn't mean we won't be talking about broader Canadian or international issues. The plan right now is to have a rotating cast of guest co-hosts with the occasional feature interview. But let's kind of get into it and tease out what this week's show is about. So one of the shitty things about my job is that I have to listen to campaign speeches of my political enemies over and over and over again. Uh, During the last provincial campaign here in Alberta, Jason Kenney had a stump speech about how once he won, he was going to lock all the MLAs in the legislature, turn off the air conditioning, start cracking whips, and wipe clean all of the damage that the Alberta had done uh, in their past four years in office. And he called this the summer of repeal. And that's like, uh, you know, a nice catchy turn of phrase when you're giving a speech to your hooting jackal supporters. But when you start governing, uh, reality sets in. And Kenny's summer of repeal quickly morphed into a much kindler, a much gentler, uh, much more hilarious uh, spring of renewal. And I'm not kidding, that's what he actually called it in his press release. So to help me sort through the real harm that Jason Kenney and the UCP have caused just in their short time in office, and, you know, kind of tearing, teasing apart the, like, empty calories of press release puffery and, like, you know, the stuff that they're bragging about that doesn't actually do shit, I have Dr. Shama Rangwala with me here in the studio. Shama, hello. Hey, how's it going? So, uh, Shama, you're a lecturer at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta in the Women's and Gender Studies Department, right? Yeah, I just started there, moved over from English and film. Uh, you're a frequent panelist on Alberta Primetime and a founding edit- editor of uh, Parisence, an online culture and p- politics magazine. She is also an excellent racist sign noticer and a Progress Alberta monthly supporter. Shama, thank you for being our very first guest co-host. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, okay. This, this starting point off here for this, you know, this springtime for Jason stuff is this press release that we kind of both have and we both kind of talked about. And I realize dunking on like press releases might be, you know, shooting fish in a barrel, but this is our first podcast. We want to kind of keep it easy. Um, why don't we kind of go over the like the top brags of this, of, of their kind of first legislative session and then kind of tease them apart here. So obviously first one thing, one that they talk about axing the carbon tax. This was a big surprise to you, right? Well, you know, that's basically their campaign, but it's what I I really hate about this is that I don't care care that much about a carbon tax. Um, This is not like my politics aren't like, let's just, you know, do a carbon tax and like that's going to solve climate crisis. A market. We we put a market on everything. This is not going to be the solution to something that's so deep and structural. But because this government is pulling everything so far to the right, you have all these people who, you know, the carbon tax was a compromise now saying like, oh my God, they got rid of the carbon tax. Oh, horror. I mean, uh, putting a price on carbon is like a fundamentally conservative solution to, to climate change, right? Like, like to think that putting a price on something will fix it is like, is not a leftist, not a socialist, not even like a, a broadly speaking, well, it is kind of liberal, but, but it's not anything that like you or I could look at as a real solution to the problem of climate change. And now we're in this position of, of you know, having to defend you know, this policy that we only think is like kind of good and would only be really be good if it was like, um, you know, an order of magnitude larger. The other thing about the carbon tax that I really, really hate and kind of doesn't get talked about enough is, uh, this was some tweet from like one of the Twitter economists that's online, Andrew Leach or Trevor Toome, but it's like, we went from a carbon tax that covered 75% of emissions to a carbon tax that covers 50% of emissions. You know, we still have a carbon tax on large emitters in this province. And 
and it's like uh, we fought all of this political we expended all of this political capital we the Alberta NDP expended all this political capital for for that and it's like oh my god it it it, it is it is so so deflating <laughs> um, next up i think is something that i think we're going to keep coming back to over and over and over again over the next 4 years is this corporate tax cut they want to chop the corporate tax from 12% to 8%, giving us the lowest corporate tax in Canada by a wide, wide margin. Um, you know, thoughts on this? Well, the actual policy, like just what you're seeing with a carbon tax, doesn't really matter as much as the rhetoric. And so, you know, a press release is, first of all, a rhetorical document. So this corporate tax cut enacting the job creation tax cut, this mm. like shift in rhetoric, <laughs> really tell, like, what does it, what does it mean? Like, what kind of jobs? Like, it's, really like an empty kind of term. It's jobs for some people. We know other people are going to be losing their jobs um, in certain sectors that the government doesn't like, like education. Um, so I mean, it's a tax cut for job creators, which is a is, mm-hmm. which is a term that they've kind of revived kind of from like Bush era, I feel, Republican politics like job creators. Um, I mean, it's a tax for them. It's, it's not a, I mean, a job creation tax cut. It was this like shoot me in the head Orwellian language. But like... Uh, it, it's it's an excuse to commit austerity at the end of the day, right? It's like, oh, we don't have any money in the bank, I guess, uh, post-secondary education, dis- disabled people, education, healthcare, I guess you're all going to have to live with less. Sorry, shrug emoji. And so, you know, that's that's where I am in the corporate tax cut, and it's just going to keep keep bubbling back up and over and over again. This is a strategy that has happened in so many different places all over the world, but also in Alberta, if you remember the Klein years, and it's been proven not to work, but what it really does well is make people lose their trust in public institutions. They're like, why should we fund healthcare? Like when I went to the hospital, I had to wait so long. Like we should just like give me more money so I can go pay for, um, you know, private clinic or something like that. And your family like left Alberta during the Klein years, right? Absolutely. So uh, my dad worked for the Alberta Research Council. He's a researcher. And we moved to Saudi Arabia in the middle because all of those research positions were cut. And this is the kind of research that really should have been done in the 90s of like how to think about energy in uh, you know in a way that's going to be sustainable so one of the final like kind of big brags from from you know the session from the UCP side is rolling back labor stuff I think they called bringing balance back to labor relations and it's a uh, you know, this is a, a long-running trope of conservatives whenever they get into power. I mean, it would have been Bill 1 if they hadn't campaigned so heavily on cutting the carbon tax but like but um you look at any conservative government when they come in, one of their first orders of business is to go after labor because they realize that like labor is a bulwark against their power and, uh, and has, and realizes that their class interests of the like working class and working people is directly counter to the people who fund and support conservative politicians. And so, you know, Karchik is, Karchik is now gone. Um, you know, we've, we've made it, the UCP have made it easier for your boss to, um, kind of, not pay you for holiday pay. They've rolled back the minimum wage for youth. Uh, they made it. They've essentially made it easier for your boss to not pay you overtime. Uh, we won't kind of get into the arcane details of the overtime stuff, but like, any thoughts on the like uh, the labor stuff that's been rolled back? Yeah. Well, you know the. 
The term class warfare is bandied about a lot sometimes, but I really think that it's it's accurate here because it's all about turning people into individuals. You know, this attack on on organized labor, of course, so people don't bargain collectively. So it's class warfare designed as this kind of like frontier individualism. And even all of their like iconography is like cowboys and things like that. You know, you saw with the premier's meeting and they're flipping pancakes with their tiny sheriff badge and uh, <laughs> cowboy hats. And it's all about like you know we're in the wild west like we're all you know rugged individuals don't you um see how a, a union would stifle your freedom or something like that i mean i just want to know who let jason kenny out with a, <laughs> with, with a fucking sheriff badge on his jacket <laughs> but i mean that's just me okay well, he um, loves cops right so. uh, he does he does okay so uh, uh I think those are the like kind of things that the UCP would would want to talk about. I mean, let's 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 dive a little deeper into what's actually causing the most damage. Like in two months, they have already done tremendous damage. And I think kind of the first thing that we've got to bring up is supervised consumption sites. Um, you know, they've talked about forming a panel to conduct an evidence-based analysis of supervised consumption sites. And just in the news today, we had Jason Kenney's point man uh, on this file, on the mental health and addictions file, Jason Luan talk about oh my god like i can pull up this rick bell article it's it's like it's actually atrocious but it it is just kind of luan uh, taking a very aggressive muscular stance against like some of our most vulnerable and some of our most downtrodden people in alberta and this is really a trend i think we're going to continue to see like anyone who is outside of jason kenny's electoral base jason kenny is going to fuck you and he's going to use the power of the state to take away anything that might have anything that might be good for you and he's going to make you worse off yeah, so a fundamental question here is do you believe that we live in a society and that we should take care of each other or do you believe that the only people you have to look out for are people who are like you or like immediately related to you like your family? Um and this is, it's a very, very upsetting issue because we know that there are all kinds of reasons why people, um, you know, fall victim to addiction or, you know, there are all kinds of reasons based on housing. It's related to, you know, austerity for sure. There are all kinds of structural reasons why, why, um, you know, people have these problems and we should be taking care of them. And Rick Bell's article is so, uh, you know, fuck them. Like, I don't want to see them. They can go ahead and die. And it's all through this moralizing lens because it's really easy to moralize people who you don't have to interact with. And they're just like not part of what you consider to be society. And uh, I'm not sure like who's going to be advocating for these people when the rhetoric is so strong around them. Like who in power, who ha- who has power to, to be helping these people? There's on the ground organizing, I think would be probably the best like really just go and like help these people where they are it's a, it's a question of of yes do you do we want to live in a society <laughs> that takes care of people like rick do bell does not live in that society no and like here's some uh, some quotes from kenny like oh yeah instead of just telling people where to go and shoot up with poison how about we open up more detox beds and more treatment centers to show real compassion and it's like Yo, you like you're literally going to be cutting healthcare funding in the fall when the budget comes out. Like you're there's no way you're opening more detox beds and more treatment centers. You're just taking away their supervised consumption sites and giving the healthcare system less resources. This is also an extremely illustrative quote. We will not allow neighborhoods to be destroyed, says Kenny. Um, you know, again, kind of like centering the homeowner in in, in this discussion of like these people who are 
facing unbelievable amounts of like trauma and stress and who are homeless and un unhoused and who are dealing with mental health problems and addiction problems. And it's like, oh my God, the, the, this is the issue that, I mean, I hope and pray that like normie centrist Albertans can kind of see this and like you see some kind of media figures who are able to step up and say nice things. Like I know Ryan Jesperson's yeah. brother works at like Insight or something and he has been really good on this issue. But this, what is it, like two people a day, I think, are dying from the opioid crisis in Alberta. It's like, the and, and the recent stuff that came out was like, these are typically like middle class, like white guys who are on their own in the suburbs, right? Yeah, so the opioid crisis we know is, has its root in the pharmaceutical industry, um, its root in capitalism, right? And so the Sacklers at least are being shunned from art galleries and stuff like that now after, you know, being kind of one of the main people who, who brought this crisis about. So if we think about like why, you know, why this crisis has happened, the sort of social reasons, there's all kinds of ways that it takes us back to this idea of individualism and alienation and that there isn't, you know, and, and austerity, that people are losing their jobs, they don't have the social supports. And then you have this like capitalist industry that's like, here, here are some medications. And then they're like, okay, now we have to go to the street to get it. Um, and, and it proliferates in this way. And so you can't just, I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. Like Kenny is not, he's bullshitting when he says that they're going to open more beds. But even if they open more beds, what does that do? Like, what does that do to this whole chain that is like beyond Alberta, this whole chain of problems? Like we Safe injection sites is harm reduction. So what we want to do, this is like the very most basic, reducing harm on the ground, and then think about like how do we get people the social supports that they need. We're not going to solve capitalism and you know the opioid crisis in Alberta itself, but we can just like have people you know have social supports, fund like like communities to to take care of each other. But these people can't detox. They can't get treatment if they're dead. And yeah. like, if there's one thing that supervised consumption sites have shown is that they save the lives of people. Yeah. And when you get rid of supervised consumption sites, which they're, they've stopped the planning, they've stopped three planned ones that were supposed to come out in this review, who knows what's going to happen. Like people will die and that's not hyperbole. Okay. Let, let's, let's move on here. Cause I think there's one other kind of like super damaging mm -hmm. issue that we got to get to. And that is essentially rolling back protections for gay straight alliances and, and what they call it is uh, proclaiming the education act, which is kind of a bit of arcane legislative bullshit that we're not going to get into. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, le legislative protections that were brought in by the Alberta NDP to protect uh, gay straight alliances and similar clubs in schools have now essentially been rolled back to like Tory era level protections. And uh, again, like totally unnecessary, totally cruel and and really puts, like, again, our most vulnerable people at risk, right? Yeah, so Adam Server had that article in The Atlantic saying the cruelty is the point. And we see this also globally, that there are these governments who are doing policies that don't actually seem to make a lot of sense on the surface. And you said that this is unnecessary. Um, it is cruel. It was unnecessary to their electoral chances in this election. So we can ask ourselves, like, what is actually necessary? Like, what is the goal of this? Um, and I really think that these conservative, you know, right wing, they're going farther and farther to the right, are all about creating a sense of community and solidarity, the kind of words that we use on the left to, to organize, uh, you know, across differences, but they want to create their own kind of community and solidarity. And to have him, uh, you know, Jason Kenney, 
do, you know, he's a social conservative. Like, he's one of them, right? Adriana Lagrange, uh, like, showing that video, uh, you know, her, her organization in Red Deer showed that video that was, like, abortion is the Holocaust. And she's like, um, you know, I just, I just listened to her give some speech about how uh, what inclusion means to me is basically this really... Uh, a historical kind of erasure of any kind of difference, born and including unborn. born and unborn, <laughs> yes. right? And so when you have this, like, this, it's this, um, you know, education act that's like kind of anti-education. What is the purpose of it? It is to tell those people that I'm on your side. This is your community. This is where you belong. And like we keep saying it, but like fuck them to everybody else. And you know the data is there on safe injection sites. The data is there on uh, gay straight alliances or like you know institutionalized support in their schools and stuff for for kids. Um, so this is they actually do save lives too. Like it's also not hyperbole to say that you know inclusion in these kinds of clubs where they don't have to tell their parents like, do you want Mark Smith? Do you want him to be the teacher who who is up to to like tell tell these kids' parents right? Um, and when you come back to the GSAs, like the literature and the research on this, is that like not only does it reduce suicide rates for queer and trans youth, but it also reduces suicide rates for straight youth. Mm-hmm. It reduces suicide rates across the board. And so like in what world, like how do you look at this at the available science, at the available literature? And you're like, you know what? I want to make it harder for people. I want them to have less protections. Like the cruelty is the point. It still doesn't make me any less mad or any less kind of world weary, but it is, it is just, it just makes me so fucking, I don't know. Well, kids aren't voters and they don't have any money to, you know, donate to political campaigns. Um, And they're not organizing in the same way that like, you know, social conservatives, like, you know, anti-choice movements are organizing. But we did see a lot of kids coming out, um, you know, all over Alberta. Like I was in, um, I was in Banff and Canmore that weekend that the kids were marching um, against, you know, this was during, during the election. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were like, 25 kids just like walking down the main street of Canmore. So again, the government is not is not on anyone's side. The government's on the side of you know capital, and that and it's convenient for them to mobilize people through these social conservative issues. But if we can organize, I mean, this is what I think a podcast like this and in Progress Alberta um, can be at the forefront of this, like actually educating people, bringing people together um, on issues based in you know facts and and research and what we know about what's happened in the in the past with austerity during recessions and stuff like we have to take care of each other and 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 as far as what this podcast is going to become and how we want to approach it like this is part of an ongoing thing too so please like reach out to us when you do hear this okay well there's one last thing as far as like most damage that um i don't know if you have a riff on this or if you want to comment it it, it is like an area former area of expertise of mine which is like renewable energy and the and the Kenny government kind of very quietly got rid of the renewable energy procurement program, which had gone through two cycles and which had procured some of the like cheapest renewable energy in North America. Um, you know, they framed it as ending costly subsidies after the renewable energy programs round three. Um, there's no consultation with the renewable energy on this as far as I know. And this was just kind of like quietly done, like as a matter of course, um, but this is essentially strangling the, strangling the renewable energy in its crib. Um, you know, we have incredible wind and solar resources in this province. 
we have the ability and the know-how and the land base uh, to do this. Uh, one of the one of the rounds of the uh, renewable energy program was actually like had to have indigenous co-ownership. Like there was a lot to like about this NDP program, and it's just like gone, and we're never going to think about it again. And so I just kind of wanted to take a minute to like rest in peace renewable energy program. Well, there hasn't been consultation for anything really. They're like, we won the election, so we're just going to do whatever we want. And people will suffer. And, you know, Alberta is what is in the ground in Alberta is going to contribute to all kinds of horrible things. I just finished reading David Wallace Wall's The Uninhabitable Earth. So it's kind of weighing on me Ooh, like what the future what the future will look like. Um, but this, you know, renewable energy sector doesn't is not funding their campaigns. So no, exactly not. Um, Okay, so there's one kind of final bit of the last of the summer of repeal, you know, springtime for Jason stuff that I do want to talk about, and that is the bullshit stuff uh, that they uh, the most kind of like puffy, useless things that they brought forward. And, and the first one I do want to bring forward is um, the Senate elections. Um, they brought this back, kind of seemingly. I mean, maybe the timing was just good, but seemingly in a fit of peak that the Senate hadn't done something for Jason Kenney that he wanted them to do on one of the bills that, that the oil industry hates. And, uh, and it was like, you know, jokes on you, man. Like you expected the Senate to like do something. And then he framed the Senate election act as this act that would somehow make the Senate accountable. Um, just as a brief aside about the Senate, the Senate is anti-democratic trash. It was literally an institution created so that rich people would have oversight of like the democratically elected people in Canada. Abolish the Senate, abolish it now. Um, however, I am somewhat considering a joke Senate run in 2021. So you heard it here first on the progress report. Um, I'm strictly on a like <laughs> abolish the Senate uh, ticket, but, but maybe it could be fun. I mean, the they passed a bunch of motions that I thought were hilarious. Like the UCP passed motions that allowed for free votes uh, for the MLAs and everything. Like there's there's literally nothing stopping anyone from voting any which way they want on any issue in the legislature. Uh, they passed a motion requiring MLAs who wanted to cross the floor to resign and seek a by-election. Again, totally non-binding, total bullshit. Um, in this kind of press release, they also bragged a lot about um, not changing anything, like, like uh, kind of cognizant of their summer of repeal rhetoric that like, oh yeah, we kind of came in here with this like mandate to sweep out a bunch of shit and like, look, we didn't, we're, we're listening. And it's, but it's just like, uh, um, you know, ask the energy industry to significantly increase its advocacy efforts. Like they, they like wrote a letter to the energy industry saying, please do more of this stuff. I mean, you're always going to get governments who are going to brag about the stupid useless shit they do, but it just seemed like there's a lot of it, especially when you frame it in something like the Senate Election Act, which is which is just extremely useless on its face. Okay, I think that's it for the summer repeal. You got any final final thoughts or or you know conclusions as we kind of wrap up this segment? Well, they're doing all kinds of stuff, sort of telling us what what side they're on, and uh, you know, I guess I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, the earplug <laughs> debacle because, uh, you know, I work at a university and uh, there's all kinds of like, you know, campus free speech and stuff, which I have written now two articles on at Pyrocense, if anybody wants to read them. Uh, you know, Lindsay Shepard just got banned from, from Twitter yesterday. So, nice. uh, but then, you know, when they are confronted with actually having a conversation about ideas that they don't like, ha handing out the earplugs was really, I mean, it was just, it was very strong symbolism of 
their real commitment to uh, to speech and debate. So, uh, but you know, we're gonna really know what they think uh, when the budget comes out. I think that's gonna be really, really. Yeah, like the uh, blue ribbon, yeah. the blue ribbon McKinnon panel is gonna come out, and they're gonna be like, "Oh, looks like you're gonna need to make massive cuts," and mm-hmm. I expect to see massive cuts in the fall. Mm-hmm. But we're not getting a budget until after the federal election. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of the one thing that we didn't touch on, and all the harm that's being done. But because this budget process, they got elected in April, mm-hmm. because we're not going to see a budget until November, like every agency, like school board, disability group, housing co-op, blah, 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 that, that depends on provincial money has like, is essentially in limbo and hasn't been able to budget. And yeah. so, um, you know, the families who are in that kind of like disability community are like, they're getting denied funding. Mm-hmm. Like the people who are needing funding aren't, aren't suddenly not showing up. They don't know, not need funding anymore. And so, like, this is something that I would keep an eye on, too, is this, um, I mean, Kenny has shown a penchant for going after the people who are not a part of his electoral coalition coalition, and for being kind of needlessly cruel. But, like, as we saw in Ontario, like, if you go after, like, it was the autism families in Ontario, but mm-hmm. if you go after, the, like, the disability community in Alberta and their funding, like, they're organized, they hate politicians, mm-hmm. they are, they will scrap. And I don't think Kenny comes out on the right side of that. So that's something to keep an eye on, I think. Okay, so... That's kind of like main segment of the show over. I think now it's time we move over to sundries. This is a part of the show with kind of like shorter, quick hits where we kind of want to bring up things that we want to talk about. This is a a regular feature in our email newsletter, The Progress Report, which uh, if you're not subscribed to, go subscribe to the best goddamn email newsletter about Alberta and Western Canadian politics out there. But the first sundry I wanted to bring up well, it kind of, we both chatted about this. Mm-hmm. We both wanted to bring this up. Is Safe City YEG. And why, why don't you kind of like demo the, the like what, what it is we're talking about and then why it's terrible. Yeah, so it's this new initiative by the city. And you can go to this map online and see all these pins dropped everywhere. And if you click on a pin, it'll say, like, I was verbally or verbally harassed or, you know, groped or like yelled at or something. Um, there are pins everywhere. So it's a, it's a digital map where people yeah. can say where they feel yeah, unsafe, yeah. essentially. Yeah, basically. So it's like, safe city, let's crowdsource where people feel unsafe. And it's really, it's everywhere. It's, uh, I live in what I think is like a pretty good, like walkable neighborhood. Like there are all kinds of people who live there and there are pins all over. And I've lived there now for nine years almost. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I didn't know. Like, <laughs> oh, one block from me, there's this. But of course, it is just contributing to this mindset that like the person who attacks you is like jumping out of the bushes or whatever, because we know that, um, you know, especially for women, like probably the least safe place for a lot of women is at home. Mm-hmm. And so like what drop pins in homes then? Like this is really, really not helpful. It's promoting a narrative that actually just makes people distrust their neighborhoods. It makes people not want to be in public spaces. Like if there are lots of pins in a park, then we're reducing the commons, right? Like we are reducing like people's desire to like be together in public space. And so I really do think that it... Like, this is the thing I've been saying this whole podcast, but, like, it takes us back to this individualism, this way that, like, you know, just stay at home. Like, don't, oh, did you know that, like, this street had, like, three gropings? It's like, did you know that, like, you go to a party or a bar or something and there are, like, 20, like, it's really not, like... We uh, live in a society. We live in in a society. Um, I mean, I I have a couple issues with this, too. I mean, it's it's kind of, like, easily gameable. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how this data is going to be useful in any context. Like... Um, so like, 
I struggle with the like how anyone is going to glean anything useful from mm-hmm. this. I, I also think that it's like kind of clearly designed for and by white people. Like who has the Absolutely. who has the like time <laughs> to participate in this? Who is going to be like ZoMG? There was like there was a person in the park late at night. Yeah. Like like who is going to actually drop a pin because of that? Right? You know what it made me think of is the proliferation of white women memes of permit patty and barbecue becky <laughs> on, the on the phone like oh did you know that like there was some like melanated folks like having a barbecue in the park or something like that because of course like yeah it is going to like they're going to be more pins where like more brown people live so i just want to say that trolling that map is good praxis by the way so <laughs> so by all means head to safe city yeg or just google it and drop a pin on every police station in edmonton every cop hanging out that you're aware of every like UCP office that you can find really anywhere. I mean, at, at the end of the day, troll that UCP map. UCP office. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> I feel very unsafe in a UCP office. Okay. Uh, the next century I want to bring up is um, a podcast, another podcast, podcast talking about podcasts. It's Slumtown. Uh, Slumtown is a five part one-off podcast from CBC. That's kind of currently making the media rounds. And it's like, uh, it's a, essentially a podcast about drug houses and a handful of neighborhoods and kind of like inner city Edmonton. Uh, it's made by this woman named Elizabeth Hames and it kind of definitely apes the like Sarah Koenig serial S town, this American life feel and sound. It, uh, it sounds great. The production values are super solid, but man, uh, I regret to inform you that like slum town is canceled. <laughs> um, here is the social media blurb. A battle is brewing in Edmonton's inner city. Neighbors are terrified. Fights, overdoses, and crimes spill out from problem houses, many owned by a small group of people connected by one notorious landlord. CBC's Elizabeth Hames investigates. Oh, boy. (laughs) So I listened to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, first of all, I think that I have a lot of sympathy for the people she interviews. And I think that it actually, just from the title down, (laughs) it reproduces all of the, you know, conditions, the kind of culture, the perspectives that lead to problems like this where people are just made to be othered. They are just not part of society. We need to do something about them. So first of all, I think exactly that it was called Slumtown to be like S-Town, but S-Town was about an individual who had like mental illness and stuff who called his town a shit town, S-Town. She is, this podcast is just calling this part of Edmonton slum town. Like it is saying that this is not like, this is the slum town. It's not the bougie neighborhoods where CBC listeners live, like are listening to this podcast and the safety, quote unquote, safety of their homes. Um, so that was, I think, just the first, pro- like the most like basic first problem. And it also has this whole like villain. Instead of the villain just being like housing policy and healthcare policy, the villain is this individual landlord with like multiple like non-Anglo names. And he's just the one who's like preying upon people when this is not about one bad dude who's a bad landlord. Well, I mean, I think... <laughs> Yeah, it's obviously has a lot of problems. And I, and I don't want to diminish the fact that like the people who Elizabeth speaks to, especially in the first episode, which is kind of totally mm-hmm. centered around homeowners, aren't facing kind of legitimate problems mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. And, and disorder problems in their neighborhood. But like the people um, are totally othered and they, they, they become essentially like zombies. They become this faceless abstraction, this like problem to solve mm-hmm. as opposed. And I don't think she gets anyone on tape who is like, 
actually a homeless person. I think she talked to maybe someone who was formerly a homeless person, uh, like or the sister or the family of someone mm-hmm. who died. Like, like it's really lacking in 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 the actual narrative of the like. Why are you in a situation where you have to deal with this shitty landlord and these unsafe houses? There's just no examination of that, right? It's 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 very good at kind of like teasing out dramatic, painful moments from the people who are experiencing dramatic, painful moments, but there's no systemic mm-hmm. or like analysis of like, uh, yes, uh, landlords t- typically tend to be bad. Landlords who <laughs> own homes that are in bad repair in inner city neighbors tend to be even worse. There's no systemic analysis of the like the police, the real estate agents, the lawyers, the mortgage brokers, the, mis- the municipal government that allows all these things to to kind of continue and to propagate, right? It's just like, who do, who can I complain to? Who, do, who can these people mm-hmm. complain to to solve this problem? Yeah, and so we did have a story of a victim, and she was the most perfect victim because she was a young, beautiful white woman, and it is. And her sister talks about it, and it is it is heartbreaking. Of course, on this individual, personal level, it's heartbreaking for the sister. Um, she was killed in a domestic violence situation, and that problem has not been teased out from from this. It still becomes like, oh, she lived in one of, uh, you know, Carmen. Pervez uh, or Shah, or he has different names, um, one of his buildings and she lived in another building and then she was killed by her uh, intimate partner. And so, you know, I think it's deflecting a lot of structural issues into individual. It's painting like good victims. You know, what if the victim was just like, that they interviewed was just like, uh, you know, racialized person who overdosed, right? Like that would have been a different kind of a story. And so this is not at all to diminish that story itself, but to say that there are certain choices that are made by producers and editors, right? Um, and that those choices reflect a perspective that they're trying to put forth. It's like, come on. I mean, you're you're producing all this great tape, but there's no. You're not asking like, why why do we have a housing crisis? Like, what what are the things that the city and province are saying mm-hmm. that they're doing on this file? What are they doing, and why aren't they working? Like, yeah. like there's no. If this had been an, a podcast where they, it had been accountability, like going to the city, going to the province, going to whomever, yeah. and being like. You, this is clearly a problem. What are you doing to fix it? But it's just instead, it's it's highly produced kind of like pain theater, right? Yeah, and Alberta is one of the richest jurisdictions on the planet, and we have a lot of space. And so the question really is like, why if those two things are true, do we have so many problems? Um, like, peop- why are so many people suffering? Yeah, like we as a society have the technology to build houses. Mm-hmm. This is not a, a technical technological fix. Yeah. Um, it, it is really a question of like, oh, can we build houses for the people who need them? Mm-hmm. And like, that clearly we can't. Um, you know, this is part of a, a larger thing that I've been kind of digging into, which is the city of Edmonton actually has a kind of tragically small amount of publicly publicly owned housing. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the city of Edmonton can only kind of control the publicly owned housing that it has. And they have kind of all these great plans. And they work with all these other partners. But the, kind of like, I, I kind of want to continue this conversation because uh, maybe on a later podcast or on some other podcasts, because you know, publicly owned housing, like, is the solution here. Okay. Uh, our final bit, our final piece, Shama, I'm going to spring this on you cold because, uh, I think it is going to be more hilarious if we spring it on you cold. Okay. The headline, Corbella, colon, rodeo animals love what they do and wouldn't exist otherwise. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) So this is a, an article by Leisha Corbella of the Calgary Herald, of course, if you're not familiar with our kind of worst journalist in Alberta. Not Rick Bell? I, uh, 
Why do why choose? Why choose? Yeah, kind of. They're they're one A, one B, one A. Okay, uh, you've read the piece, I assume. You kind of commented on it. I can bring it up for you, but it's.、Um, I'm going to read you some quotes、uh, from this piece,、um, which are just incredible. Okay, J.P. Veach, a stockbroker and former bull rider, says that while he can't prove it, he's pretty sure that rodeo bulls love what they do. I would suggest that they are beyond happy to buck rather than appear on a platter or being a steer," says Veach, who is married to Rona Ambrose,、oh, former, <laughs> former federal conservative party leader and cabinet minister in Stephen Harper's government. Okay. 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 So this is an article ostensibly about chuck wagon horses.、Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is in response to the like、yeah. six chuck wagon horses that have died. The Calgary Stampede just ended. Six chuck wagon horses died. The chuck wagon horses are mentioned in the title. Chuck wagon horses are mentioned kind of throughout the piece, and there's this total. Non sequitur quote with this JP Beach guy. Okay, I'm. I want to try to bring this, bring the whole podcast together in my response to this. I really do think that they're creating their own reality. So when we say that, you know, like le- the left and the right have different epistemologies, like different ways of interpreting the world and worldviews, like this idea that somebody can say. You know, with a straight enough face that it makes it into an article in the media. That no, 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 no. They really like it. Like the yeah, these animals in the rodeo. Like yeah, some of them die, but it's okay because they have a really good time. And like, don't you see how rambunctious they are? <laughs> Whatever. They're really good, like they're creating their own reality. So. So there's a second part to this quote that I, I saved. Okay. So he says he's talking about. He's pretty sure that rodeo bulls love what they do.、Uh, Here it is. These animals are treated like top athletes," said Veach, adding, "Anything making the sport safer is a good thing." But the criticism reminds him of the refrains heard about Alberta's energy sector. <laughs> so people people not liking chuck wagon horses dying as a blood sacrifice to the oil and gas industry at the Calgary Stampede. That is that is apparently the same as the campaign to landlock Alberta's oil. This <laughs> conspiracy theory. Well, let's bring this back to the way that the right is really good at creating community and solidarity, and it doesn't have to be based in anything real. Like it doesn't have to be based in like the reality or unreality of these animals liking it or any of the other stuff that we're talking about. They're just saying like we're creating this reality where these things are true. So、uh, this is the way that you know. Alberta mythology is like oil and rodeo, basically. They're like it is this weird marriage of like the frontier and kind of global capital, <laughs> and yeah. So this is this is the、uh, the kind of in the final kind of few paragraphs from this、uh, from Corbella's article, Ben's Miller, who is a Chuck、uh, wagon driver who's kind of been quoted throughout the article. He says his horses are loved and pampered, receiving massage therapy, chiropractic care, and injured horses are sent to a horse spa to soak in salt water ice baths. Most rodeo events mimic real life on a ranch: roping calves, wrestling steers, taming horses. It's an important part of how the West was won and how many agricultural families、oh、still、gosh. live. Yeah, how the West was won. How I mean, the West was won. Who who did we win it from? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah,、uh, this is peak Alberta. This article. I think this piece, this piece is is peak Alberta. I don't think you can get any more Alberta than Leisha Corbella talking But about life, the rodeo. But life, as they say, is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. For many rodeo animals, it would literally be nothing at all. <laughs> I mean. It's an incredible piece of of twisted logic to be like. Actually, the animals love it. <laughs> Um, But their their whole 
the whole conservative movement, this like nationalistic movement is all about twisting reality to fit a narrative. Okay. I, I think ending, ending on that note, <laughs> I think is, is a great place to, to leave it. Um, you know, thank you so much, Shema, for, for being here with me and kind of being the very first guest co-host of the progress report. Um, you know, if you, if, if you are listening to this podcast, please take a minute to give us a five-star review, of course, and leave a blurb. It really helps us kind of be more findable by more people on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, please send any kind of like comments, critiques, messages of support or hate to uh, either my Twitter account, which is at Duncan Kinney, or my email, which is K at progressalberta.ca. Uh, Shama, where can people find you online? What's the best place uh, for people to get a hold of you? Well, I'm on Twitter, so it's at Fritz Lechat, F-R-I-T-Z-L-E-C-H-A-T. Um, and that's, yeah, that's probably the best place where you can check out piracinstock.ca as well. Fantastic. Okay. Well, for Shama and I at the Progress Report, goodbye. Bye.